Hello all, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I find things fascinating, so then I look them up, and then I look up other random things I learned in those parts, and on and on until finally I put together what I think are the coolest parts. Kind of like spin a web. I hope so. I hope it seems like that and not just random. Right. But I just tend to go where my intrigue takes me. Yes. Um, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Today, as you can see by whatever clever title it is that we've thought of after we're done recording this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yep. I bet it's great. Yeah, to be determined, but awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you, You already know we're talking about the Earth's magnetic field. The geomagnetic field, if you wish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it's me. So, also animals. We'll talk about those. Of course. Because um, that's what I like. Makes sense. Perfect. Well, how about you teach me something? Okay. This episode, let's just start by me saying, um, it's not like... Super in my wheelhouse in terms of the physics and chemistry. Sure. It's a little tough. So uh, I'll do the best I can. Okay. But um, there are things that, try as I might, I wasn't going to be able to uh, learn fully or invest the time to learn fully or didn't want to. Also. All, yeah. all good reasons yeah. or things. So I thought we'd start with what is a magnet? Okay. Pretty basic. Let's, good let's start there. Starting place, right? Yep. Because it's like one of those things seems so easy and obvious until you try to explain what it is. You're like, it's a magnet. Everyone knows what a magnet is. Right. It's a metal thing that sticks to things. You know, it's got a north and a south. Sure. It sticks to things, and it's metal. Everyone knows what a magnet is, right? Right. Um. Yeah. So magnetism is caused by the movement of electrical charge. Yes, very good. <laughs> Thank you. Each substance, you'll like this one, is made up of tiny structures called atoms. No way. <laughs> Each atom has electrons. Correct. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm doing so well so far. I mean, unless you have H+. Plus. I'm doing it. Electrons carry an electrical charge. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So as electrons move around... The nucleus of the atom, they orbit it, yes, as, as you will. They also are spinning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so their movement generates an electrical current, and that causes each electron to act like a very tiny magnet with a north and a south polarity. Right. Okay. In most substances, there are equal numbers of electrons spinning in opposite ways. So you're not going to get any net magnetism in that substance. Yeah. Pairs of electrons is how they like to be. Well, it's not necessarily that. It's just they're balanced out. The directions of spinning are balanced out. Correct. Yeah. I'm just saying they usually come in pairs that equally balance each other out. I see. Okay. I don't know if the pairs are together. I don't, I don't know if you're implying that they travel together in those pairs. Typically in because a similar orbit. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other things like iron or cobalt or nickel, you get most of the electrons spinning in the same direction, which makes those atoms more strongly 
magnetic, mm-hmm. but they are not magnets. Um, because you need another strongly magnetic substance to enter the magnetic field of an existing, to like make a magnet. You need an existing magnet, basically, almost, to make a new magnet. Because you need a a magnetic field to, um, turn all those, uh, electrons kind of line them up. Orient them the proper way. South and south. Yeah. So if you have like a ferrous material like Mm -hmm. iron. Yes. Like, you know, Ferris. Uh, it has all these potentially magnetic molecules in it, um, but they have to be aligned in the same direction in order to create a an actual macro scale magnet. Yes. When you rub a piece of iron along a magnet, the north-seeking poles of the atoms in the iron line up in the same direction as what I had written next, but that's okay. Perfect. You go. I do. Yes. Uh, so the force generated by the atoms creates a magnetic field. And so what exactly creates Earth's magnetic field? I told you I had a surprise for you. And mm. I learned something new in this section. Okay. You're never going to guess it. It's I mean, iron. You might guess. That's true. Earth's magnetic field is a result of the movement of, you know, the liquid iron in the outer core. Yes. There's inner core and outer core. The outer core is liquid. The inner core is not. Um, but what makes the iron move, though? Like, what actually makes this happen? Okay. I think the answer will surprise you. Okay. Mostly because I keep telling you it's not what you think. Right. So, I, I could tell you what I assumed. Sure. Which is, I, I assumed it had something to do with the rotation of the Earth. Like right. an example of the Coriolis effect. I assumed that. That would make sense. I mean, um, other things it, I guess it could be would be similar to like plate tectonics or something like that, where we have physical masses floating on top tr- that are trying to move. But I guess that the flow or rotation of the outer core probably has more influence on that instead of vice versa. Hmm. But interesting that you bring up solids. So. I'm not saying the Coriolis effect has no impact on the flow of the liquid iron. Okay. Um, but the effect is not the driving force. The iron would move either way without the Coriolis effect, but it doesn't mean the Coriolis effect doesn't add certain movement, speed, or direction, or something to it. Sure. It's just not the, the driver of what goes on. And that is actually what's happening is the liquid iron is solidifying. Okay. Um, and so the cooling and crystallizing of these liquid to solid pieces as they're getting near the, like the inner core is, is solid, yes? Mm-hmm. So it, this kind of general pattern of some parts cooling and crystallizing and the liquid kind of having to flow around it. Yeah. It's just, it just pushes the liquid kind of out of the way, which starts to create... Um, a flow when, when the reactions are happening all over. And I assume um, that some of the uh, kind of solid inner core um, slowly melts and becomes liquid and, and you have an effect similar to like water um, evaporating into the sky and then becoming wind. You might and think then that, like but nothing raining. in my research said that they were, you know, happening at equal rates or both even happening. Okay. 
they say the primary force is the crystallizing of the of the outer core. Okay. So I don't know if that's also happening. Fair enough. So yes, the movement of this liquid metal is going to generate electrical currents. Mm-hmm. And those electrical currents are what generate the magnetic field. And I wanted to know how did they do that? Sure. <laughs> but that's not an answerable question. Turns out the answer to that question is the universe just works like that. Mm. And we have known about it for a very, very long time. We've hundreds some, and hundreds of years. We've made some cool rules around it. Like right. We've observed, rule we've observed like the patterns that exist. Yeah. Why do they exist? Who knows? Okay. Um, we know that electricity and magnets influence each other. You know, we've studied it. We've measured yeah. it. Measured everything we can. Um, all we can say is that we know the relationship is real and then it's precise. Like we know, you know, if you do this and put this much power through this level, like we, we know with precision what will happen, but that's only from measuring and we don't know what's going on. Sure. Um, it seems like electric and magnetic fields are one in the same, basically. Right. Um, like an electric charge, like an electron in motion, of course, causes a magnetic field and a magnetic field in motion causes an electric field. So they're, yeah, they're pretty much the same, but also they're like opposites. It's cool. Well, I mean, in my chemistry uh, university career, uh, we definitely had like extensive units on on this type of phenomenon and like the equations and, and how it works. I, again, like I, I guess you're right. Like the why the phenomenon exists wasn't really explored. Just the because no one knows. Okay. I've looked as much as I can for an answer, and the professionals say the answer is that's what happens. That's the rule. Sure. Um, So the continual movement of the liquid metal through the magnetic field creates stronger electrical currents, which thus creates a stronger magnetic field. Anyway, so that's a positive feedback loop Mm -hmm. called the geomagnetic dynamo. And that's how our magnetic field powers itself, is this dynamo effect. Cool. But... Here's another cool thing. They did a paleomagnetic study. I'll explain mm-hmm. that in a second. Why Why does your face look like that? Because this is cool stuff. If I were to give spoilers, I shouldn't give spoilers. You just keep going. I mean, I told you this. Is that why you're going to spoil it? No, I did a paper on this in university. Uh, so you go ahead and have the floor. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've been asking you to write episodes of this podcast. And if you would like to do it, I would really love one where I get to sit there and make the spoiler comments on your podcast. It's true. It's true. So you should do that. Mm-hmm. I hear you. Um, so a paleomagnetic study, which I will explain in a second. One of us will explain in a second. Um, of red dacite and pillow basalt from Australia. These are rocks, if you couldn't tell. Yeah. Um... Has estimated the magnetic field is at least 3.5 billion years old. Um, that's not to say it's not older. Right. We just don't have hard enough evidence. There is some unreliable evidence that said 4.2 billion and the scientists went back and were like, this is just not reliable enough. We shouldn't conclude that. But anyways, that is the um, youngest it can be, 3.5 billion years. Right. But... We don't think that the iron in the core started solidifying until a billion years ago. Oh, I know that. So okay. 
the magnetic field must have been driven by some other mechanism prior to this in the two and a half billion plus years. Um, so, so what and how did it start in the first place? How did it sustain itself? Very interesting. Yeah. So, here's where I explain the paleomagnetic field, or paleomagnetic study. <laughs> Go for it. Field is too many places in this podcast. Okay. So, um, let's say you have, you know what, I'm going to talk about it later in the next section. Sure. I think it goes better there. Fine. You're going to have to hold on to... Man, leave everyone on a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know you're just like dying to know, but um, <laughs> I wanted to just give some two cool facts about the magnetic field. Okay. And then we'll move on to, to okay. the information. Um, so the strength of the field at the Earth's surface is, it's, it's, it's not continue, continual. It's, it's a range. Right. Um, so it's less than 0.3 Gauss, which is the unit of measurement we use for this. Um, in like kind of South America, South Africa area, um, over 0.6 Gauss near the magnetic poles in the North and the South. Yep. Um, basically near Northern Canada and South of Australia, um, and part of Siberia. And then the average strength, um, is measured to be about 25 Gauss and that's the outer core. So it loses, you know, it's 25 Gauss in the outer core. And then by the, you know, the surface, it's going to lose like 50 times, like. Yeah. Nearly um, all its strength. It is. Yeah. And yet that's enough to have the effects that we do see. So it's very interesting. Yeah. That it still works. Um, so why do we use the unit Gauss? Well, the Earth's magnetic field's strength was measured uh, by Carl Friedrich Gauss in 1835. Since then, it's been repeatedly measured. And it's showing a relative decay of about 10% over the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's not surprising. No. No one is surprised that it's changing. Changes all the time. Sure does. Okay. So, speaking of changing all the time, well, let's talk about the poles. Let's do that. And that's where I can talk about the paleomagnetic study. And yes. also your face is so excited. I know. It's I know so that, cool. I know that your paper was about the poles switching and stuff. Yeah. Um, and there's probably a lot of new stuff since you wrote your paper. Oh, probably. Which is why you should have done this episode. But yeah, Fair enough. Um, Plus, university was, bad. what, 10, 15, 10, 12, less than 20 years ago. It was less than 20 years ago. Um, so the geomagnetic poles, if you didn't know, are not the same as the North and South pole. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which don't move. Those don't move. No. Earth's magnetic poles move often, Mm -hmm. um, due to, as you're saying, like plate tectonics and that type of stuff. Yeah. So how do we know where the poles used to be? Mm. That's, where that's the, a good segue into... That's where paleomagnetism <laughs> comes in. Yay. So scientists, here's what they do. They study igneous rocks. Yes. Like the ones I was mentioning earlier, basalt, dacite. Is it dacite or dacite? Uh, don't, I I'm don't know. I'm saying dacite, but sure. it's a C. So you never know how to say C's. Um, and it has to be igneous rocks. Yes. Okay. So first they date the rocks. 
They gotta know when that rock was made. Yep. When did it become a rock? Then they map the magnetite or whatever other magnetic mineral um, might be inside. Yep. They map it. See, because igneous rocks, they're made from cooling lava. Right. And as lava cools and becomes solid rock, those strongly magnetic particles that are in the liquid start to become magnetized by the magnetic field and line up along the lines of force Correct. in Earth's field. So as it cools, they get locked into place yep. in that orientation. So they record um, the position of the Earth's geomagnetic poles at that time in history. And then get locked in. Right. But there was a bit of a rough patch in the field of paleomagnetism when they were like, hey, we've got all these rocks measuring the same date that are pointing to different locations for the poles. And it's contradicting each other. And that doesn't make sense. Right. Um, They did resolve this problem, though, by integrating plate tectonics into... Yeah. Paleomagnetism. Right. So they realized that this rock has moved. Has moved from the time it was formed. Yeah. Um, so if it went back to, you know, the place it was formed, it would point to the right way and everything was consistent and fine. Um, but also, doesn't that kind of show you how paleomagnetism helps map out plate movements? So it helps both both, you know, um, disciplines kind of help each other there it seems like yeah it was a comment i was going to make because i that was one of the things that i had found again years and years and years ago uh one of the things i had found absolutely fascinating as uh an opportunity as an academic at the time being like oh this is how fields actually like different um disciplines actually work with each other and help uh each other advance their respective fields it's mm-hmm. really cool yeah seems like you could make uh, kind of cool map using those two disciplines together. Mm-hmm. So, based on the study of basalt throughout the world, yeah, it's been proposed that Earth's magnetic field reverses at intervals um, from tens of thousands of years to millions of years yep. long, and the average interval is about three hundred thousand years. But it's not always a reversal. Um. Correct. So, really, it collapses and rebuilds itself. Right. It collapses, and then which direction it rebuilds appears to be somewhat random, is, was what I recall. I didn't go enough into it because this episode was focused on something else. Sure. I did learn that the last reversal, um, called the Bruni's Matayama reversal. Okay. Said that wrong. Maybe. Um... <laughs> Who knows? Probably. <laughs> Happened around 780,000 years ago. Yeah. So we're due? Not right. Doesn't really. No. Yeah. I remember, I remember when like I was that. doing research, That's them being like, as averages would suggest, we're past what would have been an average Yeah, but collapse, averages don't but, matter. Yeah, correct. And also, that's not how basically odds of things work. No, okay. not really. So, the Earth's magnetic field also extends several tens of thousands of kilometers into space. Yes. Which, I mean, doesn't that just surprise you how much strength it loses from the outer core to the surface, and yet it can go tens of thousands of kilometers into space? Like, I know it's the materials that the, you know, maybe make up the density of the materials it has to go through, but still, like, that's pretty crazy to me. Yeah, and we're, 
it's one of those things too that even while you like if you don't have a linear decay that actually hits zero and you have like an exponential decay like technically you get to a point where it's infinitesimally infinitesimally small but still exists really far away it just has to do with how far can we still detect it well, but yeah, but it's not like it's doing nothing. It is forming the magnetosphere. So it's obviously still strong enough right. to form this very important thing that's the only reason that life on Earth exists. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that that's not saying it's infinitesimally small. It's useful. It's still to the strength that it's useful. So that's not infinitesimally small. I'm saying it's it expands past that. It just, yeah. the you know, the strength of it decreases such that it's yeah. not... It's just cool that it's useful all the way out in space. It's very cool. Okay. It's very cool. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> so the magnetosphere wraps around the planet and the planet's atmosphere. Um, solar wind, which is like emissions of charged particles from the sun, um, presses the magnetosphere into the Earth on whatever side is facing the sun and stretches it into like a teardrop shape on the shadow oh. side of the Earth. So it looks like a looks like a weird squished in ball on one side and a teardrop on the other. Cool, depending I didn't know on that. what side the sun was. Neither did I. Huh. I learned it in this podcast. Yeah, right. So it protects the earth from most of that solar wind, um, but some leaks through and becomes trapped in the magnetosphere. And when the solar wind kind of those particles hit atoms, like it hit the gases in our upper atmosphere around the poles. Yeah. Around the geomagnetic poles, not the north. Yeah, north. right. Um, they make auroras, light displays called auroras. It's very cool. So you get Alaska, Canada, Scandinavia, you get the northern lights. And the southern lights you can see from Antarctica and New Zealand, yeah, generally. Super cool. Right. I agree. Um, so then, here's where my brain goes next. I'm talking about magnets. Balto. No. Magnets and Balto? Don't no, really Northern Lights. In my brain. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Totally. I get you. But magnets and? Compasses. Yes. Was was something I thought I had to learn about. Of course. Well, not magnets in general. The Earth's magnetic field. To be clear, that's what this podcast is about. Not just magnets. That's a good episode reveal. Or mid-episode reveal. So perfect. I'm pretty sure I said that at you the did. beginning. Maybe I wasn't so specific that it was not all encompassing about magnets but i already yep. told them our witty title is gonna is gonna explain everything that's true they probably knew better than we did in the first couple of minutes i agree we'll yeah. figure out that title don't you that's worry. fine okay so compasses scientists historians people we don't know when magnetic compasses the, the theories were discovered we don't really know what Andrew knew about magnets necessarily we know the ancient greeks knew about magnets though Okay. Um, they would note that on rare occasions, quote, lodestones is what they call them, mm -hmm. which is what we still call them, yeah. were found in nature and that they were chunks of iron-rich ore and they attracted iron and it was confusing. Yeah. Why? Why do they do these things? Um, some of this lodestone was discovered near the city of Magnesia. Oh. Now in Turkey, by the way. Okay. And from there we get the words magnet and magnetism. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And magnesium. So magnesium as well? I don't know. I was actually, so I thought too. I was like, oh, that's where we get magnesium. No, no, this is, about, this is about magnets. Okay. It makes sense. Yeah, fine. So wait, 
We did a podcast about the names of the elements. We did. <laughs> did I talk about magnesium? I don't remember. There's so many elements to keep we'll straight. About, we should put them in a table and organize them or something. We'll, we'll learn about that after this episode. Okay. Just for us. Just for Homework. us. You'll have to Google it yourself if you want to know. That's fine. You probably don't. Um, so, the magnetic compass was invented in China during the Han Dynasty between the 2nd century BCE and 1st century CE. They called it the self-governor or self-pointing fish. Hmm. And it wasn't used for navigation. Hmm. It was used for types of geomancy. Cool. I know. Way better a, answer. That's such a cool word. Um, and then I'm going to ruin it. Like feng shui. Oh. <laughs> and for fortune. Geomancy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in games, geomancers are like people who can control the earth and stuff. So. Yeah. That's not at all what geomancy means, though. It's, it is in my mind, though. It's like predicting stuff with the earth. So it's like you throw some bones on the ground and you're like, well, this is like this. Yeah. But feng shui is geomancy because you're harnessing the flows of the earth by organizing your shit correctly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I get it. It does make sense. I'm just going to substitute that truth with my own uh, definition in my mind. Okie dokie. Yeah. And the fortune telling. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine too. Okay. So not surprisingly then, we think that China also invented the magnetic compass to be used for navigation first as well. That's also a logical leap. Yeah. But it took them a while from when they first invented them. Um, we don't know when. Sometime before 1050 CE and possibly as early as 850 CE, we think they first used a magnetic compass for navigation. Okay. Um, the first written record of compass use in Europe is 1190 and 1232 in the Muslim world. So very early compasses were just made of a magnetized needle, which they really just, like, a lodestone. Mm -hmm. Magnetized with a current magnet kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Um, it would attach it to a piece of wood or cord, like something that floated. Correct. Yeah. And they would just put it in a dish of water. Yeah. Um, and then when the needle settled, they would, they would know that that was magnetic north. Yeah. And that's pretty much as good as you could get at the time. Um, so compass needles were then mounted eventually, placed in the card, showed, they said something like an insane amount of directions, 32 different directions. Wow. They, why not? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Put all the directions on that little card. Anyways, um, the cool things that we started to learn were that, you know, you couldn't always just use a compass with no adjustments to your navigating. So in the 15th century, explorers realized the north on the compass wasn't the same as Earth's, like, true north. Right. And it didn't really matter at first because we were sailing in warm places. Hmm. And meaning? Near the equator. Meaning that you could survive because it was warm? Meaning that you wouldn't have much what's called deviation. Oh, because you would be far and, enough away. Because you're near the equator. Right. But the closer you got to magnetic to north. Pole, to the, either pole. The, the amount that deviates from where you're trying you to end be. Up many kilometers yeah. away from where you want to be. Yes. Totally makes sense. Okay. Took yes. me a moment to get there. Oh, I'm sorry. That's variation. These words mean things. That's called variation. Mm -hmm. So you have to adjust for variation. Nowadays, we also have to adjust for deviation. Right, where the magnetic pole deviates in where it was. No. 
No. Deviation is when you put your compass on your metal ship or your metal airplane, it's going to cause deviation on your compass just from interference. And you've got to adjust slightly for whichever vessel that you are now putting your compass in and it's going to change for every vessel. Interesting. Okay. Very Very high tech. Yeah. Okay. So now, because I like animals and, Mm -hmm. and I write this podcast... Both true. We're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about animals. Okay. Let's do that. I say so. Yeah. Does it still have any uh, relationship to Earth's magnetic field or just we're just talking about animals because we want to? Mm, Pretty much entirely is about the magnetic field and its effect on Mm. animals. See, we tied it together. That's good. Oh, you think I I was planning on just leaving you hanging there? No, but I thought it would be funny. If I just... Yeah, if you just switched. (laughs) And now for something different. Now for something completely different. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, there's tons to talk about in this arena. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is going to make little to no uh, sense because I don't really get it. But I'm going to do my very best on some of those tough parts. Um, And again, this is one of those emerging sciences that's kind of... We've been thinking about it for a while, but like having actual proven data instead of just maybe it's this and maybe it's this. And this is pretty decent evidence. Like that's just starting to kind of happen um, as far as what can animals perceive, what actually influences them, sure, that kind of thing. Um, so a variety of animals seem to detect Earth's magnetic field. Um, some animals like migratory birds rely on it in some ways for navigation. Sure. Again, this is something that we think we know, but it was very hard to prove because people, there was lots of theories and people were fighting about it for a long time. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. So lots of animals use it as a source of directional information, like just a compass, like we would really, north, south, whatever. They're going to consistently go in the same direction, but they can also use it another way. Um, which is that, as I've said, the field varies across the globe in a predictable manner. Um, so they can kind of use it as a map. Okay. If they're getting towards a weak area, a strong area, like they can kind of use that as like where I am, as opposed to just which direction am I headed. So that makes sense. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so one of the first concrete signs that animals can feel use this field uh, was observed in 1957 in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, where a researcher noticed several of his European robins. So they're in a, in a cage. Um, they were coming really restless and they were fluttering into the southwestern part of their cage over and over. Um, he didn't think it was unusual at first because that's kind of something that was known to happen. Migratory birds got really restless at that time of year and European robins in Germany were going to be migrating southwest to Spain for wintertime. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, makes sense. And then he stopped for a second and thought, well, these birds are in a completely shuttered room. Right. That's not something we've observed before. Like they're inside a controlled environment that isn't really changing in, I assume, what would be like temperature and... Like there's no windows. There is nothing in this room. They couldn't see visual landmarks. They couldn't see other robin, like wild robins. And most importantly, they couldn't see the sun or the stars, which science already knew served, like, 
as a navigational aid for the birds. Okay. So we thought, yeah, they navigate with the sun and the stars and they just remember where they're going. We didn't really know what else besides that, but yeah. they couldn't see any of those. So how did they know which direction to fly in? Right. So clearly they were acting on something invisible. So this researcher, whose name was Hans Fromm, um, realized it must be the magnetic field of the Earth. So then he did a bunch of experiments and other people did a bunch of experiments. And we started to prove certain things could, you know, detect the field. The harder part was, but yes, do they do anything with it, though? Okay. Yes, you can detect it, but can we conclude anything from there? Right. Um, so... Hamsters, salamanders, sparrows, rainbow trout, spiny lobsters, bacteria, all can detect the magnetic field. Um, so it's not a stretch at this point. We've got to the point where, um, you know, we're not allowed to say anything without it being proven first. But there's no reason why all animals wouldn't have at least the ability to detect it if this wide of a range of animals do. Okay. So most or all animals can probably at least detect it. Again, does that mean anything? Maybe, maybe not. Exactly. Now you're starting to get it. Yeah. Who knows? Um, so another example is whales. So in 1986, some research was done that showed whale beachings occurred more frequently near coastal areas which had what's called magnetic minima. So very low points in the field. Um, which is good evidence for magnetoreception in whales because yeah. otherwise it wouldn't keep happening at these specific spots. Um, so it seems like whales follow the field during migration. And the theory is if they got off track and they followed this magnetic anomaly that kind of curves and then runs into the coast, mm-hmm. then they could end up on the beach. And whales, you know, if the leader whale made the mistake, their group would just follow them. Okay. Um, so maybe that's an explanation for mass strandings. But that's just one theory, and there's so many theories floating around. Like, I read one the other day um, that had some evidence that maybe dementia or Alzheimer's in the lead whale was an explanation for mass beatings, you know. So, this is one of those problems where it's probably, like, a bunch of reasons. And And this could be one. This could be one, yeah. Okay. Um, So, as we were talking about before, the magnetic field changes and collapses and does its thing. So, my question at that point was how would that affect the animals that needed it or used it or whatever. Um, And of course the answer is we can't know for sure, but most scientists think it would be fine. Animals would be able to adapt just fine. Um, So going back to Hans Frome, when he placed his robins into a steel chamber Mm -hmm. and then he reduced the strength of the ambient magnetic field by one third. Okay. The birds didn't flutter in one specific direction anymore. Cool. Okay. Um, So that suggests the birds need a certain intensity of field to use it. Um, And then one of Fromm's colleagues, F.W. Merkel, uh, came around and showed that that's true, but the birds were able to acclimatize to the new magnetic field within a number of days. And I couldn't find the specific number of days. I think he just said a number of days, which is not helpful. What number? A thousand? Ten? Like, dude, a number of days? Yeah. So even if something were to, you know, collapse, let's say it would collapse like it's doing now. 10% every 150 years and then start building up again slowly. So there would be lots of time. 
um, to adapt, right? Yeah. And there's been lots of reversals in our planet's history. Yeah. And so scientists have checked specifically to see if any extinctions, mass extinctions, any things that we could possibly detect in that realm have lined up with any of the magnetic field reversals. And we don't always have great evidence for when extinctions took place, but we do have pretty good evidence for when the reversals took place, as we were saying from before. And so far, nothing we can find coincides with, you know, the two things together. So we think, but again, can't know um, that that wouldn't be an issue. Um, Reversals, like I said, take hundreds of, well, hundreds or thousands even of years to kind of complete. Yeah. So yeah, they'd have plenty of time to acclimatize. Um, and even if the main dipole, dipole field, the north-south field, collapsed completely, which can actually last up to 10,000 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, residual, residual fields that are 5 to 10% as strong as the main field would remain on the surface of the Earth. Really? I didn't yes. know that. Okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's almost like that's why we do this podcast. Yes, it is like that. <laughs> so... How might the animals be sensing the magnetic field? This is where we get into more complicated science. But first, let's get into some pretty easy science and talk about bacteria. Sure. You know, so much easier when you're only one cell big. Yeah, that makes sense. brain and organs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to start here because like everything else, we don't know for sure the mechanisms of magnetoreception in animals. But we do know the method for sure in bacteria. Okay. Woohoo. So, there's a type of bacteria called magnetotactic. Magnetotactic. I don't know which sounds cooler. Magnetotactic. So, this literally just means they contain magnetic material. They contain what are called magnetosomes, which are like little bags of magnetite surrounded by fat membrane. Sure. Okay. So they can be like 50 to 20 magnetite crystals per bag. Cool. And these crystals all line up like a bar magnet, like a bar of a compass. So these little sacks just line themselves up and perfectly along the uh, magnetic field, which just passively orients the bacteria along the magnetic field. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, they're not doing anything, but it's like a first step. Right. Yeah. You got to start somewhere. Yes. So, we're still investigating most of magnetoreception in animals. There's two main hypotheses that we're currently discussing. We meaning the royal we, it's not me. Oh. Science, just in general. Not just you and I. Okay. Yeah. One hypothesis involves a quantum compass based on a radical pair mechanism. Radical pair of electrons is what we're talking about here. I mean, and the moment you say radical, I I hear free from the, like, from the nucleus. Like, it's not, and then pair, like, still paired. And then, um, like, I don't know how that works. So, you keep going. I don't know if I'm going to be able to explain it, but there is something later that quantum, it's about quantum things. They're quantum entangled. That's why they're called a pair. Okay. Anyways, I'll try to explain it later. Great. Um, the other hypothesis is a more conventional iron-based 
magnetic compass with magnetite particles or just magnetic particles. Yep. Um, so let's talk about the first hypothesis. So in 1978, it was proposed magnetoreception is possible due to the radical pair mechanism. And this is apparently what radical pair mechanism is an established, very well established concept in the field of what's called spin chemistry. Okay. So I guess there's a whole field where they just study the spin of electrons and that's chemistry, not physics. I don't know why. It's very confusing, which which is which. There's a lot of crossover there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... What, though, was the molecule in the animals, in the bodies, that would have this function of of being a receptor to make these radical pairs kind of thing? Like, they're like, that's a mechanism, but that doesn't physiologically answer anything. Like, could it happen? I don't know. Is there anything that creates that type of thing in the body? And so in 2000, um, scientists decided that they they had an answer, probably. There's something called cryptochrome. Mm. Cryptochrome was the magnetic molecule behind this effect. Because it's the only protein known to form, I'm going to talk real slow here, light-induced radical pairs in animals. I mean, they said builds radical pairs upon photoexcitation. But I think mine was slightly clearer. Oh. (laughs) Okay. No? You don't think so? No. Photo excitation, as in excites them. Via light. Via light. Yeah. Um, so, the function of cryptochrome varies by species. There's lots of different functions of things that cryptochrome does inside of us. Okay. Okay. And there's lots and of different... We have cryptochrome as well in us? Yes. Cool. I'm feeling the magnetic field already. Well, I was going to mention that. Not all cryptochromes do mm. this specific thing. Crushing my Cryptochromes are like a category of things. Okay. Um, you know, like ketones or a thing. Cryptochromes yeah. or a thing. Yeah. Um, okay. So they all kind of work in the same basic way, though, which is exposure. Ex- exposure. Yeah. Exploding. <laughs> no, exposure to blue light will excite an electron in the chroma four. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that will cause a radical pair whose electrons are quantum entangled. Okay. All right. Quantum entangled. I looked this up. Don't worry, guys. Excellent. Is when two particles are linked together, no matter how far away they are in space, they're doing the same thing. That's what linked together means. They're doing the same thing at the same time. Even if they're so far apart, like, how do they know what the other one is doing? But they will do that. I know. Super crazy. It is crazy. Mm -hmm. So it's a pair, but they're not together. Okay. Does that help at all? I guess. Uh, I have to think this one through my mind for quite some time. So how you keep going. Okay. Let's talk about the second hypothesis because that first one is confusing. And I promise the second one is not so confusing. Great. Because it's just like there's magnetite or something. Magnetic, but usually magnetite, which, by the way, is Fe3O4, if you wanted to know. Three irons, four oxygens. Yeah. Magnetite. Um, so they're just, you know, in the animal. Yeah. Just like a magnet. There's not much to it. Iron-based receptors have been found in the upper beaks of homing pigeons and the snouts of... Snouts? Faces? I don't know. Of fishes? Do you call them a snout? The front <laughs> of now. the face yeah. of the fish? Sure. Um, and you know, this is also a system that's proposed to exist in sea turtles. 
So we've got one that's thought of as light dependent and okay. one that's not. Um, it's honestly probably a mix of these things. Yeah, usually. Some, anyways, let's talk about um, a predicted mechanism okay. that could work for some animals, but we have less evidence for it at this point. Sure. Um, so electromagnetic induction is another possible way animals could sense magnetic fields, we think. So there's uh, cartilaginous fish. So skates, rays, sharks, chimeras, you know those things, um, have electroreceptive organs. So in like a line, usually down the middle of their body, called the ampullae of Lorenzini, which is a super cool name that I love to say. Yep. And that can detect small variations in electric potential. So... The ampullae of Lorenzini are mucus-filled, and they have these canals that connect pores in the skin of the mouth and the nose to small sacs in its flesh. So basically, they're used to sense, like, the very weak electric fields of the prey that they're going after. Okay. And we don't know that they sense magnetic fields, but, like, because of the way they're intricately linked magnetics and electric anyways we think that there is a chance that that same sense and those same organs could be used to sense a magnetic field cool um because of because of faraday's laws law of induction which i remember learning in school but don't remember what it was so it's as a conductor moves through a magnetic field an electric potential is generated so in this case, the conductor is the animal moving through the magnetic field. That is Earth. Anyway, so yeah. yeah, there are some suggestions, but we don't know. Those first two hypotheses are the more solid ones at this point. And like I said, it's it's likely that lots of animals use a mix of the two. Okay. Some animals probably just use one or the other. Okay. Um, some animals probably use neither, you know. Um, probably is, yeah. Sea turtles do it one way, birds do it another, mammals do it another, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. So let's talk about some specific animals here. Birds. birds. I think you expect me to talk about birds. Yeah, I think so. When when we're going to talk about magnetic uh, orientation. So, birds. In birds specifically, scientists think we have found the cryptochrome. That's the primary sensory molecule that works in their magnetic system. Cryptochrome 4, 4A specifically, mm. now that there's been a 4B, 4A. Yeah, yeah. Right. Cryptochrome 4A. So here's some evidence. Cryptochrome 4A levels in migratory birds are highest during the spring and autumn and Obviously, that's when navigation is most critical. So yeah, that's a good piece of evidence. That, that makes sense. Um, they've studied the European robin in this regard. So the cryptochrome 4A protein from the European robin is much more sensitive to magnetic fields than the cryptochrome 4A from pigeons and chickens. So from the migratory bird, it's much more sensitive. And the non-migratory bird, it's not. Again, makes sense. Yeah. So, but then... Also, in 2016, scientists showed that cryptochrome could be activated in the dark. Oh. Which is a big thing. Because everyone was like, 
it can't be this hypothesis for birds, or it can't only be because they fly at night. Right. And what could be causing this reaction to happen? And I read the article about how it's activated in the dark, and I don't... I'm not going to repeat it because it was confusing. And again, it's just... It's it's a little above my level. Sure. So we're just going to say, what? It can be activated in the dark. That's so cool. That is so cool. Yeah. So they did some experiments with European robins. Again, they flickered the lights and they used a magnetic field that they could switch off when the light was on. Anyways, they showed that the birds could detect the field without light. Very cool. Also... The birds were unaffected by local anesthesia of their upper beak. Now, this is important Mm. because they're testing if that iron-based hypothesis could go anywhere. Right. And if there were iron-sensing molecules up there and we're turning off the sensory part. Then they shouldn't be able to sense it anymore. Right. And so, at least in these test conditions, they did not orient, orientate, whatever, themselves based on any sort of iron receptors. So it seems like at this point, the cryptochrome and radical pairs theory is the best model to explain the minute compass in birds. Okay. In these birds, specifically. Yeah. Um, scientists have also realized dogs prefer to face a certain way when they're peeing or pooping. Yeah. Yeah. The, the old, the old uh, Odie in Garfield comic type of activity. Oh. Well, I mean, Odie would turn three times and then face a certain direction before you lay down, but... Oh, yeah. Well, this is peeing and pooping, specifically. I don't know if they've done a... I'm going to equate them again in my mind. So, there's a team of 12 scientists from Germany and the Czech Republic. They spent two years observing 37 breeds of dogs. They watched 1,893 poops. 5,582 urinations. Mm Mm-hmm. I just wanted to point out all those stats because that's commitment right there to it your is. work. It yeah. is, yeah. Um, so they walk the dogs in open fields, away from man-made things, off-leash, and they basically just recorded the alignment of the dog's spine using a handheld compass every time it eliminated. Yeah. And the findings say that dogs prefer to excrete with their body being aligned along the north-south axis. <laughs> okay. Now, one caveat in this relationship is that it seems to only exist under calm magnetic field conditions. Which apparently only happens like 20% of the time. Okay. Yeah. And also, we have no idea why. But it is the first time magnetic reception has been demonstrated in dogs. Okay. I don't even know what to say to that in response. Other than interesting. (laughs) Lobsters are next. Good. We've talked about lobster before. Um, so they're one of those animals that might use the iron or magnetite-based techniques of magnetic reception. Um, so one thing they do to test that is they will use these like brief, strong magnetic pulses because it shouldn't have any lasting effect on a chemical system, mm. but it should affect their iron-based system. Okay. So they did one of those studies on the Caribbean spiny lobster. And it it is a migratory lobster. And it uses Earth's magnetic field as a navigational cue. 
and they have found magnetite in them. But again, that is all we knew. So they subjected the lobsters to strong pulsed magnetic fields, uh, and they split the lobsters into two groups, and they used different directions of magnetic pulse for each group. Okay. So after the treatments, they, they kind of just tethered the lobster within 200 meters of where it was captured and allowed it to walk any way it chose. Sure. And they found that the magnetic pulses did significantly alter their orientation. And for both groups, they altered it in the direction of the magnetic pulse they were getting. Okay. So they they found that, yes, the pulse alters their orientation behavior and they do think that magnetoreception in spiny lobsters, it is based largely or at least partly on these megatite-based receptors. Um, other water-dwelling animals that have magnetoreception proven, at least at the moment, we have giant sea slug, some other nudibranchs, um, chinook salmon, sockeye salmon. Um, and that's not to say other fish don't do it, but so far we really just studied salmon. I think we just started with migratory animals in general. Yeah, figuring that they would be the most affected. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah. So, and also salmon is commercially important. So, of course, we're going to spend money on it. Yeah. Over yeah. other things. So, um, let's talk about mole rats. Let's do that. Speaking of things that are commercially <laughs> not important. Mole rats. In Tel Aviv. It's a good place to, you know, observe them. They wanted to determine if a blind mole rat could sense magnetic field. Since it's blind, I really hope it's got some other... Sensory type of... I mean, I'm just joking. All mole rats live under the ground, so it doesn't really matter if they're blind or not. They're not seeing much. Yeah. Um, And they also make these really elaborate branching tunnel systems, so navigating has to be something they can do well. Uh, They built the mole rats this eight-armed maze within a device that allowed them to alter the magnetic field. Cool. So they tested two groups of the rats, one in the normal magnetic field and the other in a field that was as strong as Earth's but shifted by 180 degrees. Okay. And they wanted to see where they made their sleeping nests and their food chambers. In the first group, so the normal, normal Earth's field, they significantly preferred to build their beds and their little food pantries in the south part of the maze. And the second group significantly preferred the north part of the maze. After it was rotated 180 180 degrees. 180 degrees. Okay. Yes. So that was pretty good evidence that they could sense it. Yeah. And used it in some way to decide where to put their stuff. Yeah. Um, But can they use it to orient themselves while they're, you know, like, like as a map? That's the question. So in another experiment, they trained 24 of these blind mole rats to reach a goal box at the end of a complex labyrinth, they called it. Complex. So then they had half the rats do the labyrinth under the natural field and half under the reverse field. Mm-hmm. The mole rats who did it under the natural field were faster and better than the other ones at the labyrinth. They'd all learned under the same condition, though. Correct. Okay. Yes. So multiple experiments have shown that the blind mole rat and other mole rats, in fact, rely first on smell to navigate if they're only going to go a short way. way. But um, if there's a longer or more complex trip, then they would rely on the magnetic field to guide them. 
Um, other examples of mammals that have proven magnetoreception are wood mice, bats, and red foxes. So, you know that, like, jumping pounce thing you've seen foxes mm-hmm. do on nature documentaries? Absolutely. Um, it's been proven that at least the red fox, but probably just a fox thing, prefer to make that attack in a northeast orientation. Fun. For some reason, yeah. Um, so speaking of animals you expect me to talk about when talking about navigating by the magnetic field, um, I, I would expect sea turtles to come up. So I had to bring them up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, has hatchlings, you know, turtles that have never been in the ocean are able to just point themselves towards the open sea. And then once they hit the ocean, they don't change course. They just keep going in that straight line that they went into the ocean with. So they obviously have a directional sense um right from the get-go or inability to turn (laughs) i kind of feel like they've ruled that out okay as a possibility all right um the young juvenile turtles will have a very complex migratory pathway they have to follow uh adult turtles migrate from feeding grounds and go legs and all that stuff um so we know that turtles have a pretty amazing sense of navigation um, it wasn't until 2007 that we proved adult turtles can navigate using the magnetic field, but we could kind of proven it already for the, the young ones. Um, so basically big, big turtles make it hard to study. That was why we hadn't figured it out yet. It was so much easier with smaller turtles. Okay. No one could do the study, the same types of studies in a giant turtle. Because sea turtles get really big. Yeah. Like, we're talking like 800, 900 pounds for the biggest sea turtle. It's tough to handle. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So, in this 2007 experiment, um, the authors captured adult female green turtles that had come ashore um, to lay their eggs somewhere in the Indian Ocean. They were taken by boat about 100 to 120 kilometers away and released with satellite transmitters attached to the shell. Um, then they split them into three groups. They had one group with magnets attached to their head just prior to releasing them. Mm-hmm. They had another group, um, that had magnets the whole time, like during transport, but then removed before they went like released. Mm-hmm. And then the third was the control group. So they just put like a brass non-magnetic disc onto that group. Um, so... All the turtles had kind of convoluted paths. They weren't like straight lines, but they all eventually returned to the island that they had come from. Kidnapped from, you might say. Yeah, you might say that. And then, so the scientists thought, okay, like ocean currents probably kind of made the path a little indirect, right? If you're unfamiliar with the ocean um, currents. And then they subtracted out the kind of current movements. Yep. And what they found was that the control turtles swam more directly toward the island than either the two groups that had magnets in okay. different ways. Um, the authors of that study do want you to know that although the magnets impaired their performance, obviously, none of the turtles were prevented from reaching their goal, and they all got back safely. And it also implies that they've got other mechanisms that they fall back on when the magnets are messing stuff up. Right. So there are multiple methods of navigation, which we know, well, we thought, but now we know 
Yeah, well, it's hardly ever so black and white, right? Exactly. That's yep. also the hard thing about life sciences. Yep, to- <laughs> yes, totally. Um, Hymenoptera is next. Do you know what Hymenoptera is? No. If you look at my screen, you probably would know what Hymenoptera is. Okay. I think it's an order of insects, like ants, bees, and wasps. Nailed it. Yeah, I'm so good sometimes. Yeah. Um, so again, you probably are thinking about animals that migrate. And that might also lead you to colony types of insects that have to navigate en masse to different areas. Um, that's another group of animals where navigation is going to be really important, right? Of course, yeah. So, both honeybees and desert ants are well-studied experimental models for navigation, and both do use geomagnetic field cues for certain specific navigational tasks under certain conditions. <laughs> it's mm. all very qualified. Lots of caveats there, yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, okay. It was first proven the honeybees could sense the geomagnetic field way back in 1968. And to be clear, we're talking about Apis mellifera, that honeybee, western one. There's no... Um, there's lots of, there's lots of honeybees. Remember we talked about like 20 species. So this is the one we're talking about when I say honeybee. Okay. Um, the first evidence honeybees actually use the geomagnetic field, but but not for navigating, by the way, came in 1972. They found that swarms of honeybees orient their comb building with the field. Oh. Oh yeah. In a certain direction along the field. That's how they, that's how they start building it. Right. Um, they still hadn't found evidence honeybees use the field for navigation in the 80s, but they did do an anatomical study where they separated the parts of the bee to find what parts of it were magnetic. And they found the strongest magnetic receptor content in the abdomen. They found iron containing cells there. Um, and those magnetic cells do get bigger and more numerous as the bee grows older. Oh. So they get more attuned when they're, well, the theory is they might get more attuned when they're older. Yeah. So then we get to the 90s and two studies did show that honeybees can use magnetic fields as a compass. Um, So both studies kind of suggested they can rely on the geomagnetic field as reference system, but they only use that field when other cues for navigation were not, like, available. It was not the primary navigational tool. They'd rather rely on celestial cues sign in that yeah. type of things right um yeah so the magnetic field is a fallback we think yeah plus when we talk about things like they align the comb north south like you'd almost have to think that competing theories might have to do with well the sun you know follows a east west axis and you know maybe they make the comb so that you know, the, the the face of the comb is, you know, getting more direct sunlight or something like that. I mean, in general, the combs are in the dark. Uh, yeah. And they're not looking at the sun or able to see the sun when they're building these things. So the idea is how can they maintain that sense of direction if they can't see it anymore? Sure. I'm just saying uh, that the east-west nature of the sunrise and sunset might be a competing factor for a lot of things that... I didn't read this paper specifically, but you'd have to assume those authors had some, sure, you know, experimental conditions or controls to account for that. Yeah. I'd, I'd assume that, but I, you know, would have to read the paper to know for sure. Of course. 
Um, I read like most of these other papers though, and you didn't ask me about those, so that's too bad. No, it was just a random thought for really all of it, not necessarily bees in specific, but yeah. Uh, keep going. Yeah, so in the Hymenoptera, there's some suggestions that they all kind of use a magnetite-type system, but there is some evidence that maybe they use that type of system, but with titanium as a ferrous material in some Upgrade. of the some of the Hymenoptera species. Yeah. Fancy. Um, Hymenoptera don't have the light-dependent type of cryptochrome. So they probably don't use that type of system. Probably not if they we're, don't have we're it. We're pretty... Yeah. I mean, maybe it's a different molecule, but we're, we're, that would just be too complicated. Who knows? Okay. Um, so in 2005, scientists were studying a bee named Schwartziana quadrupunctata. It's a long name. Yeah, it doesn't have a common name, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, so it's a small stingless bee from the Amazon rainforest and lives in big colonies, like thousands of bees, and they dig really large, complicated underground tunnels as their nests. Mm-hmm. They scientists wanted to find out if um, the navigation in this species was also controlled or aided by magnetoreception. And so one study um, kind of applied various levels of magnetic fields across the entrance to the nest. And then they measured the exiting angle of the bee as they came out of the nest. And, okay. And so they found that the majority of the nest had the preferred exiting angle aligned with the local geomagnetic field. So we think they can sense it. That's the first step. Okay. Um, And then another study dissected the bees to find where their magnetic cells might be. Okay. They found magnetic material in the head and the antennae and the thorax and the abdomen, but about 45% of it was in the antennae. And... There's a few other studies done on these bees, and basically, so scientists suspect that they use their antennae for navigation, and that includes magnetoreception navigation with their antennae. So that's the, the current theory with these bees. Um, it's also interesting to note that, I'm going to say this one too, the Pachycondyla marginata ant. The elephant ant? Ant? Oh, maybe. Pachycondyla. Elephant. What's a condyle? Epicondyle. What do you think? It's part of a bone. I don't remember what it means. Anyways, I don't know okay. why it's named that. But it migrates relative to the geomagnetic field. Very so cool. again, we're pretty sure it, you know, uses that field. Yeah. And it has a very similar result. It has about 42% of its magnetic material in its antennae. Hmm. So we're thinking it's further evidence to support that these bees maybe use their antennae to sense the magnetic field. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I don't want to leave amphibians out. Good. So I'm going to do like this like little shout out and then I'll end with humans. Okay. Okay. So in 1977, scientists found cave salamanders are able to perceive the Earth's magnetic field and they respond to changes in its direction. Um, that was the first evidence of magnetic orientation in amphibians. Okay. Since then, we found out red-spotted newts, European toads, and natterjack toads rely on, to some extent, the field for orientation or navigation. People. Good shout out. People. Yes. Okay. So, testing for magnetoreception in humans has been tricky. <laughs> hmm. In the 70s, they just asked blindfolded people to point in a cardinal direction after being spun around. <laughs> and they're like, people can't do this very well. <laughs> yeah. 
Or they would like lead them far from home with a blindfold and be like, which way is home? And they'd have to point and they're like, they're like, I don't know. Anyways, people can't do these things very well. Right. This is not really good evidence that we don't have. Anyways, um, here's what we know for sure. We know for sure magnetic fields affect human cells and other mammalian cells in petri dishes. Cool. But those are in vitro results, so who knows? Mm. We know that there is magnetite in the human brain. Recently, scientists found that it's most concentrated in the evolutionarily ancient regions of our brain, the ones that we share with, you know, reptiles and all those things. Yeah. Um, The brainstem and the cerebellum. We also know humans don't have the gene for the specific cryptochrome that's been so well studied in birds that cryptochrome for. Right. Um, So far, that gene's only been found in birds, reptiles, fish, and amphibians. But this is the latest research, which people, um, hmm, I'm going to say there's a lot of debate about it. So, you know, you can't take a paper as proof of something. Okay. Adaptations needed. Um, so biophysicist Joe Gershvink, he uses EEGs and he tries to record brain activity while he changes magnetic field around a person, basically. Okay. Yeah. So they had 34 people sit in a quiet, dark aluminum box. And Sounds they nice. changed the flow of electrical current through the coils lining the box. And that creates a magnetic field that slopes steeply downward like Earth's field. Um, and then they would rotate the field like what would happen if the person was turning their head. Okay. And an EEG study with a different design, though, um, earlier... They didn't find any response to a changing field. So Kirschbrink wanted to retry that study because he said that that was too long ago and the techniques of time weren't powerful enough to detect um, changes. So his study, he says, proves, found a rotating field sometimes made uh, the alpha frequency waves drop. I don't necessarily know what that would signify. Just detection um, of some sort? It's typical of a brain that's awake but at rest. I don't really know. They're just saying that that there is the drop of the alpha wave when the field changes. There is a response that they picked up that's a semi-consistent thing. Okay, fine. Um, but the effect shows up in less than a third of participants. He thinks that could indicate, you know, genetic factors or past experiences influence your sensitivity to the field. Um, Mysteriously, the change only registered when they rotated the field counterclockwise, not clockwise. Mm Okay. So he thinks that that means humans use magnetite-mediated magnetic reception over cryptochrome or that type of reception. Um... Because when they reversed the magnetic field to point upward, then the rotations didn't change any brain activity. Um, And magnetite, like a compass needle, would respond to a field's direction, where cryptochrome would respond identically to fields with opposite polarity. That's all very confusing to me. But in general, he is thinking that this is evidence of a magnetite-type receptor. Okay, I think I can follow the logic. Yeah, so again, like I'm saying, some people definitely are not convinced. I liked this quote from a biophysicist who says, okay, is changes in brainwaves 
evidence of a sense. If I were to stick my head in a microwave and switch it on, I would definitely see effects on my brain waves. That doesn't mean I have a microwave sense. <laughs> True. <laughs> I liked that quote. Um, this guy says that it would be more convincing to see evidence that the brain actually processes magnetic information in a way that would influence behavior. There is a new study he mentions from a South Korean research team, which found that in the absence of any visual or auditory cues, men who had fasted for about 20 hours could sometimes orient themselves in a direction they previously associated with food. Uh, uh, yeah, that, again, we, we need some more study. Yeah. Uh, this is something in its infancy. Yeah. As we can image the brain better, these things will get better. And it's, I expect some cool results coming up in the future. But that's kind of the current state of affairs. Um, and, and yeah, that's all the stuff I found out about the Earth's magnetic field. And very I thought it was cool. Maybe a little tough to, to parse, but very yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, that's the end of our episode. So I would like one more time to plug our email address. Please do. If you would like to reach us for some comments or helpful critiques that are nice, but I would like to learn if I got things wrong. Yeah. Um, suggestions for future episodes, just to say hi, whatever. The email address is teach me something for the number for numeral. Yep. At gmail.com. Teach me something for at gmail.com. Um, so yeah, that's all for this episode. Sorry, it was a little, a little late. Just enjoying the holidays and all that good yep. stuff. I hope the next one will be, you know, in back in time sequence. Yeah, I think. But we may have to change that due to all the activities we have started doing. Mm, I don't know so which recording activities. night we'll have to change, but yeah, we'll figure it out and you will too. Yep. So one more time, thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.